0: What the Actual Fork podcast is co-hosted by two intuitive eating registered dietitians, yours truly, Sammy Previtt, owner of Fine Food Freedom, and Jenna Warner, owner of Happy Strong Healthy. We can't stand diet culture bullshit and love keeping it real. Our mission is for all humans to believe that they are made for so much more than chasing a smaller body. try, learn, and grow. Welcome back to another episode of What the Actual Fork podcast. Today we have Alyssa Rumsey, registered dietitian. She is all about intuitive eating and food and body liberation. So thank you so much, Alyssa, for being here with us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to join you both today. I'm going deep
2: back into your Instagram right now to see like some of the posts that I remember being like, wow, I'm so happy somebody's talking about this. And there's just so many. Um, I specifically am looking at some from the summer, but we'll talk about that. You just go places that RDs don't go always. And I love it. And I'm pumped for this combo. Um, And you have some exciting news to share too. So can you tell us a little bit more about
1: you and what's going on in your world? Sure, sure. So, well, I'm a, a dietitian, a certified intuitive eating counselor, I have found my way to this approach about four years ago now. So, it hasn't been that long. Um, and I work, I do one on one virtual work with clients. But yes, the exciting news is that I wrote a book in 2020. <laughs> what <do> you, <laughs> what a year to, of all years, right? That's uh, coming out. It will be live on February 9th, and it's called Unapologetic Eating
0: amazing and we feel so lucky because we've seen a behind the scenes uh i would say snippet but the entire book so thank you so much for giving us that and You're it's welcome. Been, it's been so fun to to read and just look through and i always love when more and more dietitians in the intuitive eating space are writing books because i i always like to recommend books to clients so it's so fun to have additional books to give them in addition to like the Holy grail of intuitive eating, of course. Of course. Um, <laughs> yes. So I guess before we even jump into your book, I would love to hear just, I know you said you're, you've only been in this intuitive eating space for like four years. So do you mind giving us a little bit of background of you and, and your, your journey to becoming a dietitian where you always, it sounds like you weren't always rooted in intuitive eating. So what did that look like?
1: Yeah. Well, so I've been a dietitian for 12 years. So most of, or the vast majority of my career was not, uh, from a, a weight inclusive standpoint. So, you know, when I went to school, it was very weight centric. Um, I also decided to be a dietitian in high school when I was in the midst of my own disordered eating and dieting. Um, And I was like, you know, like, oh, I can help people with nutrition, uh, but definitely approached it from this more disordered place and a very weight focused place. And then I actually, my first job out of my internship was in a big teaching hospital in New York city. And I was there for almost seven years, actually, which I never thought I (laughs) would be doing. I would do clinical for seven years, but I ended up uh, working in the intensive care units and then in management. So very different. Like I wasn't practicing like, you know, nutrition. I was more clinically focused and that was actually the time that, um, I started healing my own relationship to food. Not knowingly, this wasn't something where I was like, Oh, I have an issue. I need to fix this. Um, it was more just, it happened naturally throughout my twenties. Um, I moved to New York city and I felt very lucky that the dietitians I worked with all of whom were like twenties and thirties almost all of them had like great relationships to food in their bodies and like weren't dieting and just like, you know, New York is such a foodie city. And so like we went out to eat a lot and just sort of naturally over the years, I started finding my way to this, this better place. Um, And then about six years, six years ago this month, actually, I, left the hospital to start my own business. And so I was doing, you know, what I call mindful eating for weight loss at the time. So I was like, Nope, it's not diets. It's like tuning into your body. But um, you know, it was on that kind of like bridge uh, you know, Fiona Sutherland calls it splinter ass, where it's like, yep. you know, I was doing part of it, but I was still like giving meal plans and still like people were sending me their weights and recommending certain portions and kind of this middle ground. And then after a couple of years in business of just trying to get my business off the ground, doing all these trainings and business related things that I didn't know anything about, I was like, okay, I'm feeling like a good place in my business. I want to do some trainings to improve my, my counseling skills. And so I'm looking for something mindful eating based. And I stumble upon Evelyn's, uh, six week intuitive eating webinar series. I was like, oh, intuitive eating. I think that's like mindful eating, um, Needless to say, like the first, I don't know if either of you have done this, but like the first webinar, she goes into like all the weight science and like the Hayes research and my mind was just so blown open. And, but it also made so much sense because it was really coming, becoming super clear in just my own relationship with food and like other people and clients I've worked with of like, Oh, yeah, this is why I work with these people for weight loss. They lose weight and then they come back to me in a year and, like, you know, they've gained it back and they don't know what the problem is. And so much shame around that. And it just, it all kind of like coalesced. And I was like, this is it. And then I hadn't even read the book yet. I'm like doing this webinar with her and I had not even read the book. So, yeah, so that was about four years ago. And I just went down the rabbit hole of of training in, in the weight inclusive space. I actually, took a couple months off from seeing clients because I was like, okay, this is very different, um, you know, way to approach it. And yeah, so that was how I found my way to it. And then, my gosh, I mean, as you both know, it's just like the most rewarding thing. And it just feels like so much more aligned with my values and, um and with me. And so yeah, I love it.
2: It's so funny because Sammy has always said to me before I took that course, like, just get ready because, like, once you hear it, like, you can't ever unhear it. And, like, it is so true. Like, I can't even believe the way that I used to talk to people after just listening to that research and reading the studies and just hearing her, like, laugh at herself during the courses is like the best sound in the whole world. Oh, yeah.
0: Evelyn's
1: laugh is amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And also like kudos to you for having the the whereabouts to like set those boundaries for yourself, to give yourself time to rest and practice because Jenna and I always talk about our splinter assing and like going from <laughs> diet culture to intuitive eating. And it's a really hard transition. And I think Part the biggest part is feeling the guilt and shame of like that we've harmed clients, even though that was never our intention. And so the fact that you were able to like take some months off and be like, okay, I need to like learn this because that is not what I'm doing anymore. You know, the weight centric model and how do I give myself
1: time to learn so then I can like properly apply this. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely, I was a privileged place to be in. I was, you know, I had grown my business at that point where I had multiple income streams. And so, you know, private clients was only part of my business and I was doing way too many other things, but those <laughs> way too many other things allowed me to, from a financial perspective to be like, okay, let me like finish up with the people I was working with. Cause I was doing packages at that time. And then, yeah, I just didn't take anybody new on. And I was lucky that I, you know, had other income streams, but um. But yeah, I think it just, it really came I think I was really ready to hear it for sure. I, there was part of me that was like, it would be so much easier to just like rewind and like keep selling weight loss. Um, but yes, Jenna, like you said, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it just made so much sense. And, and yeah, I was just like, nope, gotta, come move forward. <laughs> So let's jump
0: into some of that
1: research.
0: I have your entire book pulled up here. But as I said to you before we started recording, as we always like to like, I'm looking up at your Instagram right now, Jenna and I are always like obsessively stalking our guests um, and and all of their amazing content. And the first thing I saw on your page is an entire highlight reel on how BMI is bullshit. So I would love for you to just kind of Take it and run with it. Of for anybody listening, if their doctor tries to quote like their BMI and categorize the size of their body, like how do you explain to them that BMI is bullshit?
1: Oh, uh, yes. I'm so so <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, where do I begin? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so that highlight came from a, I did a post kind of like off the cuff, just using some of the research that I cited in the book, and it went like totally bonkers on instagram like way more interactions and like just had all these people messaging me and i was like okay i need to make something that really spells this out more but i think to start you know the bmi so if we rewind like several hundred years i think knowing some of the history of how the bmi came to be can be really helpful because at this point in time in the 21st century bmi is used by doctors, by uh, public health, by, you know, the media, by everybody basically, all like healthcare providers to classify how, you know, quote, healthy or unhealthy someone is. So to use as this measure that the only two things that make up a person's BMI, it's based on their height and weight. And based on this one number that you then get, you're put into these categories and you're then thought to be, okay, you're either healthy if you're at this number or at this range and you're unhealthy if you're above that. And the BMI was actually created hundreds of years ago by a Belgian astronomist. So not a doctor, not a healthcare provider, and he wasn't doing it to do, and it had nothing to do with health. He was literally just trying, and this is a, a white guy, needless to say, he was trying to, um, in Belgium, like group diff the, the, the people in the country. He was trying to see if there's a way that they, they could divide them up. And so this was one of the ways that he did this. He was also a statistician. Um, and he literally said himself, it used to be called the Quaitlet Index. So, Adolf Quaitlet was the guy who came up with this. Um, and he was like, this is not a way to measure health. Um, yet, fast forward a couple hundred years, this is what is used in the mainstream healthcare industry to measure health. And, you know, if we dig into a little bit more why there's more of um, an issue with the BMIs, you're only looking at these two data points. Um, those two data points, so it's still using the data that Quaitlet. Found 300 years ago, so it's based on height and weight. The BMI itself, the scale, is based on height and weight data from par- primarily white, middle to upper class Europeans, and most likely, given the time, the 18 early 1800s, men. So it's not a representative sample of the general population, and it doesn't account for differences in in body size in other ethnic groups. And I think this is so huge, and you know. Um, you talk to a lot of, you know, black and brown folks and they will say like, you know, this, there's no way I would ever be, you know, in a normal BMI and like just looking at the body differences. And then, you know, we can talk about this more later if we want, but also knowing, right? That like fat phobia is, has racist roots. And like the BMI is also used to, to carry that out, to say, this is the quote unquote normal and you must fit in this. Yet that normal quote unquote range was made by looking at white people. Um, And then, you know, obviously outside of that it doesn't take into consideration any differences in age, um, gender, bone structure, body fat, muscle, fat distribution, um, how muscle mass changes with age, Um, it doesn't take into consideration any of those things, it's literally just looking at your height and weight. Uh, The other thing that, you know, as I dug more into this research that I found fascinating, but also infuriating, is that these differences between what is considered like a normal BMI, I'm putting this in quotes to signify that I do not, you know, stand for, I do not believe in the BMI. So in quotes, normal BMI, uh, overweight BMI, obese BMI, the differences in those number ranges are arbitrary. So they're not based on any scientific data. They were instead defined, like these definitions and ranges were defined just by like this small handful of people um, with ideas about what a quote normal weight should be. Um, There's also history with it not that long ago, just a couple of decades ago in 1998, the National Institute of Health um, in a move that was actually pretty controversial because it went against what Uh, their working group had recommended, they adjusted the cutoff for an overweight BMI. It used to be 27 and 28 difference for gender. It went down to 25. So overnight, you know, your BMI was 27. You like went to bed one night, you're quote normal BMI. The next day you're overweight. And, you know, so why does this matter, right? So you know and a lot of people can speak to this you go to the doctor and the doctor looks at your bmi and they're like oh it's you know 28 you're quote overweight you should really try to get down to a normal quote bmi and this is without them looking at any other factors right so it's like they're only looking at this one number and you know i so i have a lot of thin privilege i live in a thin body my bmi is in that quote normal range Something interesting happened to me recently. I went to see my doctor for my annual physical and I go in with this list of all of these health issues I've been experiencing, right? And so we're like talking about this list for like 30 minutes. And then she pulls up like my BMI and she's like, oh, your BMI is normal, so you're healthy. And I was like, did you just hear that whole list of things? Like, clearly I'm not healthy. I am super sedentary right now. Like, yeah, on that scale, it looks like I am, but I'm not when you actually look at what's going on and then vice versa. Um, you know, there's lots of research around how we know that BMI is not a good indicator of health status. So I just gave you that example for me there, but also, you know, very large chunk of the people who are classified as overweight and are obese are actually, you know, health metabolically healthy. So, you know, blood pressure, blood sugar, um, you know, those kind of physical markers of health that we look at. Um, and then 30% of people in the quote normal weight, so this is me in the normal BMI range, are metabolically unhealthy. So it's just in so many ways, you know, it was developed in this way that was nothing to do with health. And then we also now know, like clearly, that it's not a good indication of health status. Yet it's like tends to be the main number that doctors will be like, oh, you know, you're healthy or you're not, or you need to lose weight or you don't.
2: This is so perfect. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because I recently saw a post that went viral on Instagram. I, I don't even know who posted it. Somebody sent it to me and I don't follow the account, but it's some like Inspo man, like probably a business coach, um, who posted something along the lines of like things we need to normalize in 2021. And it was BMI is a good way to assess health. And I was like, Are you fucking kidding me? Like, wow, wh- who are you? Where is this coming from? And what's the science? And I, instead of, you know, putting myself into labor reading it, I just un- unfollowed or whatever I needed to do and got past it. But hearing everything that you just said, like, there is no case to make to say that PMI is an indicator of health.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I'm forgetting like the main thing, which is what I put in that Instagram post that like kicked this out. You said Instagram and I remembered. So then there's this other thing, right? And it's called the obesity paradox. I put that in quotes. And it's only considered a paradox because when the researchers went to study this, they thought they were going to find the opposite. And, you know, part of what that is, is that people in that overweight BMI category actually have the lowest risk of mortality, the lowest risk of death out of any BMI category. And then the next lowest risk, it is a tie between people with a BMI of 30 to 34.9, which is obese and people with a normal BMI, right? So like when we look at you know, health outcomes and one of those, one of those being death, um, but certainly, you know, day-to-day health, you know, the people at the lowest risk are actually the ones that are at that in that overweight range. And then the people at the highest risk of death um, are people who are underweight. And this is really, you know, where I went off on Instagram because I was like, huh, it's really interesting how so many fat people get accused of quote, promoting death and disease, like when they post photos of themselves, but we don't say that to supermodels like we don't say that to these like ridiculously skinny people and it's like oh yeah because it's not really about health it's about fat phobia
0: yes Yes. (laughs) yeah drop the mic drop the mic and I, I can relate so deeply to what you're saying. I had a physical last year. Same thing. Like literally, same story as you. And again, I want anyone listening to reckon, like, to know that we recognize, like, that's thin privilege to walk into somewhere and for someone to just look at you and say you're healthy. But we know, like just because you're in a certain size body doesn't mean you're healthy. But then also the contrary happens. Like you said, people in larger bodies that are perfectly healthy from a metabolic standpoint, that's where the weight stigma comes in, in doctor's office or the oppression. And that is not okay. Like, although we've had that malpractice of like people not believing us that we're not okay. Like these people are perfectly healthy and they're told, need to lose weight meanwhile they don't need to
1: and there's nothing wrong with them yes exactly and you know that weight bias and stigma that you just mentioned too it's like that's important because that affects our health you know Mm. christy harrison a couple of years ago at um a talk i remember her saying um, and this is like research-based weight stigma has more of an impact on our health than what we eat Yes. Right. So like, okay. And then I just think about this as dieticians, but certainly other healthcare providers, if we are really in the field of promoting health and we know that using BMI and promoting weight loss and asking people to lose weight is weight stigma and perpetuate weight stigma and weight stigma is harmful to health. Then we really have to like sit back and look at this. Right.
2: And I think this is like such a perfect tie. And I know we didn't discuss this beforehand, so you guys can shoot me down if you want to, but um, that Cosmo UK cover that just came out. I mean, I saw it and I was cheering with happiness. And then one morning when I woke up at like three and couldn't fall back to sleep, I got into the rabbit hole of the comments on the page and to see so many people just like so misinformed and just unaware of anything in this space, um, just tearing them down for that, I think is just the perfect example. Um, These women were on the cover for those of you that are listening and not familiar with it, which I'm sure our audience has all seen it at this point, but they had women of all shapes and sizes exercising and happy. And they used the term something about like the new face of wellness or something along those lines. Um, and we're just talking about, I didn't read the magazine itself, but I, from what I've seen, it's really just sharing what other people do, you know, for movement, for stress management, whatever it was. And people just outraged that, Cosmo could say that these women were quote unquote healthy in larger bodies. Um, and it's just all the misinformation that is out there that is like leading to that type of outrage. Do you have any anything to share on that?
0: <laughs> and fat phobia, right? right? Because
1: that's what it is. Yeah, 100%. totally, totally. And I just think like yeah, it's like we just take at face value what we're told about body size and health and, you know, morality and worth and value and all of these things. Um, And when we, you know, start to like question that and like peel back these layers of where did these beliefs come from? I think that's, that's where it gets super fascinating. And that's where we see like what you said, like this is fat phobia. This actually isn't about health. And, you know, and I don't say this to, to shame anybody that wants to lose weight or has, you know, made comments about other people's body size because, like, it's our conditioning. Like, this isn't us. Like, that's the conditioning. It's what society has put on us. Um, you know, we've been conditioned to believe that thin is good and fat is bad and thin is healthy and fat is not and that's where it really takes some like sitting with this discomfort, like we we're talking about at the beginning of like, okay, like, what are these things that I believe in? um, you know, just starting to like sit with that some more and think about it some more. Thank you, thank you, thank you for
0: letting us go there on today's <laughs> podcast. And now you better believe when anyone DMs us, "What do you think about BMI as a health marker?" We're just going to send them this podcast. Link. So, <laughs> yeah, we can check that box. But I want to now just create. We want to create space for your book, and I have everything pulled up in front of me. Same, but I would love to hear from you. Like, where did the inspiration for this book come from? like obviously 2020 was an insane year. So for you to just like write a book during it is so <laughs> impressive. So where did this come from? Like your inspiration and kind of just like the roadmap of your book?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, um, I probably would not have chosen to write a book during 2020. <laughs> I literally just signed my contract like early February. So like right before everything, just like, you know, went to shit. Um, so but I got it done. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, my my initial idea with, with writing a book and what I wanted to talk about was, because like you said, like there's some really amazing books out there, obviously intuitive eating, anti-diet, The Body's Not an Apology, like there's so many. And I love, love, love that even in 2020, we saw like even more come out, which is amazing because it's still like nothing compared to the number of diet books, right? Um, so really, you know, my idea was, and this was something in my work with my clients over the last couple of years, So like when I got into this work, I'm like, okay, I'm going to help people like with their relationship to food, help them not feel guilty when, when eating. And yes, that was part of it. But what I realized is in working with clients, like when we started like using food as kind of this entry point, really what it was, was healing their relationship with food. And then it opened up to healing and you know building back trust in so many other areas of their life. So it like started with the food, but really like the food at the end of the day had nothing to do with it. Um, and I just saw these people I was working with, like, yes, trusting them around food, themselves around food again, but then trusting themselves you know, not second-guessing their decisions, setting boundaries, like at work, like in their personal relationships, and just like really feeling confident and feeling like free to to do what they wanted outside of of these like societal expectations that are put on us. I think especially women, these expectations that are put on on us. So that was my idea with the book was kind of walking people through. You know, yes, it starts with food, and then how can healing your relationship with food and then your body then open up you know, this other kind of ability to, to like rediscover yourself and to become more connected to who you are, like before the world told you who you should be.
2: I love, and I have to just like toss this into this conversation that everybody needs to sign up for Alyssa's newsletters too, because as I shared before we started recording that I would read your newsletters before I was fully in this space, like while I was splinter assing hard and be like, wow, she says everything that I'm thinking, (laughs) like everything that I'm feeling and reading snippets of your book as well. Like you really speak in a very conversational way that is really easy for somebody you know, I was going to ask you like who this book is for, right? But I think for anybody listening that if you're tiptoeing around this space or curious of what it's all about, it's very digestible for lack of a better term and really speaks in very neutral terms, but just really informational, but conversational at the same time, which is really hard to do. So kudos to you for getting all that done Um, and really just being so relatable. And I think that's so important. Yeah.
1: Thank you. That was definitely my goal. You know, I sat down before I started writing it and was just brainstorming around, you know uh, yeah. Like, what do I want this book to look like? What do I want to be in there? But also, yeah. Like, what do I want people to get from this? How do I want them to feel? And that was my goal was to make it something that was educational, but also practical. So, you know, there's lots of breakout boxes and reflection questions and really just giving people the space, like not being prescriptive and also not being like assumptive And this was also something I I worked with an equity consultant. So I also was very much like, okay, I don't want this to be a book just written for like thin young white women like myself. Like, I want this to be something that really speaks to these like greater systems and structures that are in place that have been, you know, caused us to feel this way and be something that, you know, people can read and, and see themselves in hopefully. Um, so I didn't want to just center the like white, like straight sized narrative. Um, so yeah, my hope with the book was really, you know, giving people space, like not making assumptions of what they might be feeling, but just giving them like lots of things to consider and think about and unpack, as well as steps to then start to to move forward in this journey. Um, and I think, you know, when you say like, who is it for? I think, I wrote it like twofold. It's both written for people. Like if this is their first foray or like one of their early forays into like the weight inclusive or anti-diet space, you know, it will certainly like walks them through that. But also, you know, I really did. Um, I've read not all, but a large majority of the books in this space. And so I really wanted to make it something that was different, wanted it to be something that was new information. And so people who have, you know, read the other books or have been on this journey, um you know, we'll get things out of it too. And that's been, you know, getting feedback back um, from people who've been in this space for for years, if not decades and being like, I've never seen it presented this way, or I haven't thought about this. I'm like, okay, amazing. Like that was really <laughs> my hope was to just, you know, shed some light or give it just saying it in a different way that maybe it will resonate differently.
0: Love that. that. And so I'm looking at your table of contents here, reading all of the, the different parts and the chapters. And off the top of your head, is there like a favorite chapter you're excited for people to write? Or was there a page or a paragraph or an analogy or something in your book that you're like, oh, I'm excited for this, if you want people to know about it now?
1: Sure, sure. Now that's such a good question. Well, I think, so the book So it's, it's a big book and it's, it's a broad book and it's, you know, it's divided into that four sections. So it's fixing, allowing, feeling, and growing. And when I first wrote out my table of contents, the first three sections were like totally fleshed out. Like I had all these bullets and sub bullets and like all these different things. And that last part growing, I had like three ideas and I'd sent that to my publisher to just kind of like get their feedback and get their okay. And they're like, looks great. Just make sure like that last part has as much, you know, about the same number of chapters. And I was a little nervous getting to that that growing section. Um, but that ended up being, for me, what was most fun for me to write. So the earlier parts of the book are, just to do like a quick overview, the fixing part is you know, why we diet, you know, what these systems and structures are, you know, dieting for as a controlling force, dieting as a coping mechanism, as a way to belong. It has all the, you know, the BMI science, the health and weight science, you know, why diets don't work, a lot about exploring your history with your body and and food. And then the second part of allowing, this is where some of the more intuitive eating based concepts come in. I also have a whole chapter on mindfulness and awareness because that, I feel like you sort of need that baseline before you start exploring um the third section is feeling so okay we're not fit we're not trying to fix our bodies anymore we're allowing and then you know i'm sure you see this too of like when people stop dieting like all these and like feeling into their body for like hunger signals all these other feelings come up as well so there's like self-care coping skills, um, like sitting with it. Brianna Campos, who I know has been on your podcast before, sitting in the suck, as she says, she's quoted in there. <laughs> um, and then the last section is growing. So it's like, okay, you've, you know, done all this work, you're moving through this. And now like, and I always go back to this one client of mine from years ago. I'll never forget. She said to me, she was like, okay, we're like several months into working together. And she's like, okay, you know, food's a lot better, you know, feeling better in my body. She's like, And it's just like not taking up as much time. She's like, I have so much more time. I don't know what to do. Like, I think (laughs) I need like a new hobby or something. And that really stuck with me. And I think if I could say like the number one thing that the people I work with, when they come to me, they're like, I'm so tired of it taking up so much like time and energy and brain space, like thoughts about food and thoughts about my body. And so this Third, fourth section, growing was really fun because it's like, okay, we've stripped back these layers of all these like shoulds you've been told by society. And then like, who are you underneath that? So there's a lot around, you know, reconnecting to your your intuition, you know, values exercises, uh, really more just like fun self-discovery stuff. There's a whole chapter about embodiment, which was really fun to write. I would say that that chapter to answer the question was probably the one I had the most fun writing, the embodiment chapter, because it's all about, okay, how, how do you be more in your body? And this is something for me personally, and I think I share this in the book, like right at the beginning of that chapter, I'm pretty sure, like, as of like two years ago, when someone would say to me, like, oh, like in your body, I was always like, what the F does that even mean? Because like, aren't I in my body? Like, I don't get it. And then I had this experience that I write about in the book two years ago of just like getting out of my head and being in my body. And I was like, oh, that's what, that's what people mean when they say this. And then I've now been on this journey for a couple of years of trying to get back to that. And, you know, just because I was in my body that one time does not mean I'm like, you know, in, out of my head and in my body. Most of us like spend our days to days, like in our heads and it really is a practice. So I got to really research and explore and experiment with like a whole bunch of different embodiment types of practices. And so that was super fun to write. And also for me to just start to uh, integrate into my own life, like everything from like dancing to like singing to rolling down a hill. I was in Vermont for the summer um, while I was writing most of this book. And my partner and I were driving one day and I was like, that hill looks like it'd be so fun to roll down. I was like, I really, and we stopped and I like rolled down this hill. And like, I mean, talk about being in your body, out of your head and in your body when you're like rolling down a hill. Um, I was back in Vermont recently, we went sledding and it was kind of that same thing. Like, you're just like flying down a hill on this little piece of plastic. It's like, you cannot be in your head when that's happening. So yeah, I think that was probably my, you know, that whole section. And then certainly that chapter was, was probably my most favorite.
0: That is awesome. And that's so cool because I was definitely not expecting embodiment to be (laughs) what you said, but I I couldn't agree more. And I'm sure Jenna, you're the same where once you help people heal their relationship with food, it's like, oh, it's not about the food. Like, and last night I had a conversation with a client, same thing. She's like, I've found food freedom and now it's like I need to discover myself again yes. because I'd lost myself to dieting and, and chasing a smaller body. And she she was like, this is becoming intuitive living. Like it's yes. so much more than eating and food. And um, That's a great
1: quote.
0: Yeah. I told her I was like, I need to put that on a mug. Like really so. but I couldn't agree more. And I think it's it's so great because again it comes it comes back to our you know training as dietitians, even in the intuitive eating space is like we can only take a client as far as we go. So the fact that you have all these skill sets and for us dietitians to be able to read this book and say, okay, how do we continue to help clients grow
1: after they've made peace with food? That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, okay, great. You can like eat the burger and not feel guilty. Like, yes, that is amazing. But then I love, I love so much what you just said your client shared because that's really it in a nutshell. And I feel like that is also this book in a nutshell is like, okay then what? And then like, what can I, what can I do? And how can I continue to, to move forward? And just also speaks to the fact that food as like an entry point and like intuitive eating and working in a relationship to food, then like opens this up for people. Um, My friend, Hannah, I quote her in the book saying this. she talks about like, we're all going up the same mountain, just on different paths. And I see kind of like, My role as as a dietitian of like, okay, people come to me for food, but like this process of like self-discovery and self-improvement and um, kind of just being their, um, you know, most authentic, like connected, you know, unapologetic self and, you know, using food as that way to, to start that process.
0: It's
2: always so amazing to me when we interview, like just dietitians in general, um, I think that we have the best dietitians on this podcast personally, but um, it's always just amazing to me to just hear these stories in so many different voices. I mean, we're all very similar and all we want for people is to enjoy and love their lives again and to hear like the backlash that can happen sometimes can be really disheartening, but my hope and wish and with the thousands of people that I know listen to this podcast is that if we can just continue to change if people can just continue to hear like that there's happiness on the other side of that mountain. Um, it's just such a powerful thing. And again, it makes me really regret many years of of my, my dietitian life, but to be on the other side of this mountain is just such an incredible thing. Um, and again, to just hear it from so many different voices is the key. And that's what I tell my clients all the time. I'm like, please listen to this message from all of these other dietitians so that, you know, that I'm not making this up. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I'm not lying. Like this isn't just something to sell you. Like this is real. And all of these other people agree. It's such a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally.
0: <laughs> so Alyssa, tell everybody, where can they get unapologetic eating and when?
1: <laughs> so unapologetic eating. So the time we're recording this, it's available for pre-orders, but it's available February 9th. And it's available basically almost everywhere books are sold Um slash book has more info and a list of the different places, but it's on Amazon, it's on Indiebound Bookshop, Barnes and Noble, Target. I saw the other day, um, and it's also available internationally as well in most most countries. That is so cool! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: congratulations! And just in case, um, if people want to follow you on social, because we've been talking about your Instagram the entire episode, where can they find you?
1: Uh, My Instagram is at Alyssa Rumsey RD. Amazing.
2: Thank you so much for sharing everything with us today. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with before we close out for the afternoon?
1: I would just go back to what you were just saying, Jenna, of just like, keep moving towards like, like keep focusing on your why and like, what are you moving towards? And, you know, it, this journey is not easy. This is hard. Um, and it takes a very long time. And I think, you know, parts of it are lifelong, but just keep coming back to your why and, you know, letting that guide you forward. Perfect.
2: Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of What the Actual Fork Pod. We know there are a lot of pods out there, and we are so grateful that you are here listening with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, like, share with all your friends and faves, and follow along with us on social at what the actual fork pod. We promise to continue to bring you the hottest topics, greatest guests, and the most fun you can possibly have while fighting diet culture bullshit. We love you. We appreciate you. And we will see you next week for a lot more fun.